Hello, welcome to Threadings. I have a longer introduction for us later, but I just want to state the times before we begin the essay. Today, as of reading or rereading this essay, it is October 20th, um, 2023, and there has been a war, quote unquote, declared upon Palestine <clears throat> by Israel, by Israeli forces. Now, I don't call this a war if one side has an army and one side does not. Um, if one side is backed by the most powerful and lucrative empires in the entire world and one side is trapped in, in an open air concentration camp called Gaza, Gaza. Uh, that's not a war, that's a genocide as far as I'm concerned. So while I wrote this before um, this started and there are mentions of tea, I do want to let you know that I am fasting um, I'm taking a 40 day fast to help me feel and remember the grief to help me to remember to pay, pray and stretch my focus on, um, the worldwide catastrophes that happen and continue to happen that demand our attention. Um, in this essay, I talk about attention and the lucrative nature of, of attention as, as resource extraction. And I also commit to not selling my word. I commit to not taking sponsorships. That's especially poignant at this current moment where a lot of people cannot, say the the truth of the matter free palestine that palestine is under siege under blockade has been that um there's been an economic blockade since the early 2000s as well as genocidal thought intent and action for the last 75 years um and the reason one of the reasons that i am free to say that and say that explicitly is because i am publicly funded and publicly supported and i do not depend on sponsorships to pay my bills if i did um I would be risking my livelihood by saying that. I understand that there's some risk involved anyways, but I, I really wanted to highlight that the reason I write these essays, it's not for like fun, chits and giggles and games. It's because my politic is expanding in real time. Um, and I want to take you on that journey with me. So I have an essay for us that was once entitled Care Infrastructure, but is now firmly Information Anarchy, Wikipedia, Google, and the lucrative nature of resource extraction. In which we ask a couple questions. What is information anarchy? Why is ad-free education so important, of the utmost importance? And I, Ismatu, influencer, bleh, <laughs> and perpetual student, decide not to sell my word. This is an essay that I wanted to entitle, If You See Me Holding Up a Skinny Tummy Tea, Smiling for a Nikon, Go Ahead and Of Mice and Mend Me, It's Been a Good Run. But that was too long. <laughs> Introductions. Hello and welcome to Threadings, the newsletter and podcast where I tell you about the pieces of my politic that stitch my life together. And this includes, but is not limited to, black feminism, love studies, relishing the way that those are sister disciplines, not checking my phone around my elders, stretching my brain to expand my attention and my endurance and responsible use of drugs. Speaking of which, let me grab my tea. Again, that was at the time of writing. I am tealess. So if you hear me a little chop-lipped, mind your business. It is tea and cream season, and I, at the time of writing, was having pistachio. Today we have some ideas to thread together about information anarchy. And I'm newer to learning about information anarchy as a discipline, so please feel all the freedom to chime in with thoughts, corrections, resources. I know on Spotify there's a comment feature now, and that's dope. I read all of your comments. I really enjoy them. Um, as well as the Substack, the comments on this are already popping in. We love to see it. And in the newsletter portion of this, I have literally arranged this podcast essay into bullet points so that you can physically see the dots that I'm connecting here. 
Now, I'm about to read the thesis, and I'm going to read the thesis of this essay twice, because I think we need to work on our claim consideration. So the claim here, the primary goal of this essay is to argue for a healthy skepticism of sponsorship-saturated media. I want us as a populace to have a skepticism of sponsorship-saturated media amidst a new age in information sharing. Hey, we're in the information age. And we have secondary goals as the following. To commit myself to the people, capital T, capital P, and my people by way of refusing to sell my word online and committing to that publicly, and to name explicitly the ways that refusing traditional sponsorship places me in a decent amount of precarity. I'm going to go ahead and spoil the ending for you. I don't actually want to run from precarity. Being unsteady, it forces me to lean on the communities that I say I value. And I continually argue that refusing sponsorships as my primary mode of income forces me to expand. Now, in this position, I have to trust the people for care rather than trusting them as a willing and endless site of extraction. Also, willing? How often? Like, how much do we consent to extraction anyways? I Like, anyways, I get ahead of myself. One last quick note before we dive in. This is all very me-specific. I, Ismatu, I am thinking about my actions in context of the world that I say I want. Me, I, me, Ismatu. I feel an unrelenting call to live in accordance with my ideals as consistently as possible, especially because I know that there are a lot of eyes on me, a lot of ears listening. There are a lot of people taking note and taking inspiration and formulating critique that pushes us all collectively to be better. And you, the reader, internet friend, wayward, web surfer, watcher, etc., you would do well to consider me critically. In writing this, I am loaning you the lenses from which I see the world. I am not generalizable. I do not intend to be. What I do intend is to be careful of my personhood as it tumbles out of my exclusive control and to be kind to myself and to us all. Now, questions of the essay. There are three big questions that we endeavor to answer today. What is information anarchy? And what does it mean in terms of how we place value on information? And how do we find value for ourselves if there is no monetary exchange? So one, anarchy is, simply put, a society without centralized human hierarchy or leaders. There is an image here in the substack of that says Wikipedia is not for sale. A personal appeal from Jimmy Walls. Wallace? I don't actually know. <laughs> The use of the term anarchy in contemporary U.S. American society has been synonymized with violent, unruly chaos, and it is essentially always deployed to be insulting, and past that, fear-mongering. Anarchy within Western definitions refers to a society without centralized government or systematic rule. I find the Wikipedia page on anarchy to be such a delicious feat of creation because all of my grade school teachers warned against the inaccurate mumbo jumbo that would be caused by such a hierarchical lack of knowledge. And now, 22 years after its first edit, Wikipedia has not only proven itself as accurate as curated, institutionally sponsored collections of knowledge, it also gives us the very definitions of what it is for free. That is stunning. Again, sources in the newsletter. I also personally argue that the lack of centralized laws is not inherently disorder, 
And such a reading implies that laws attached to a governing body are the only ways to avoid disorder, which is not just a lack of centralized order. Disorder, disorder is not just a lack of centralized order, but the presence of confusion and chaos. I also submit that all hierarchy is human designed. All hierarchy is human designed. It is not the natural quote unquote state of the world, depending on who you ask. I don't consider hierarchy to be distinctly good or bad. And I do think that we lay people reading on internet infrastructure managed contractually by the U.S. Department of Commerce associate a lack of hierarchy to be bad, scary, dangerous, inevitable evil. Who told us that? Who told you that? Who told me that? Who told us that self-governance, if you even want to call it governance, is inherently a chaotic failure? Who benefits from such a belief spreading through the dominant narrative? Indigenous peoples across the globe have been practicing anarchy with generational peace, with millennial generational peace. And I would be remiss to exclude such world making from this analysis. We have the words from Klebanali, a Dine multifaceted artist and organizer. For this distinction, I would add that an anarchist would pronounce there is no authority above yourself. And an indigenous anarchist would offer there is no authority but nature. Then we also have the words of Brandon Banali, a Navajo and Hopi organizer. Being Dine could be considered anarchist because we never had chiefs. We never had hierarchy. It was always horizontal. Communism and anarchism derived ideology from Franciscan missionaries who came here in the 1500s and 1600s and studied indigenous societies. And then you have the Ingalls, Marx, Bakunin, Bakunin, reading the journals of these religious figures and how these religious figures describe indigenous societies at the time. So Anarchy is not actually new. It's not a new concept. It's just very threatening to the nation state and the idea of the nation state. Then what is information anarchy with respect to the information age? And the information age, as defined by the American Heritage Dictionary of the English Language in the fifth edition, the information age is the period beginning around 1970 and noted for the abundant publication, consumption, and manipulation of information, especially by computers and computer networks. So we, as of the year 2023 in the Western world, we live in an age of increasing information anarchy, which is also consistently described as bad. And from my preliminary research and musings on information anarchy, I had to shift through article after article that decries the ease of misinformation and the dangers of uncurated access and the woes of a lack of structure. And it's not that that's not not true. That's It's true, I suppose. But like from where I'm sitting, the people most likely to weaponize disinformation and turn it into misinformation are governing bodies. Governing bodies, both judicial and wealthy extrajudicial forces, they continue to exploit the meet the ease of mis and disinformation to woo a populace to their sides explicitly against their own best interest. Like when President Biden says he's personally seen pictures of Hamas groups beheading babies and the White House has to put out a record that says they have seen no pictures, they have no such pictures, and Biden has not seen those things. But they're banking on us not going back to read the statement. 
They're banking on the American populace hearing the president say that and taking that at fact, at face value, when Biden knows that that's not the case. You see how that's disinformation? False information that is spread deliberately to cause harm. And it turns into misinformation when the public regurgitates this lie over and over again, such that by the time the truth actually comes out, it doesn't even matter anymore. There's a video by Abby Richard linked in the image um, about disinformation. It's categorized as a wealthy, ornate, well-put-together member of the bourgeois. And misinformation with an M is dressed casually in a way that reminds us of a regular working class person that's brilliant and it's on purpose. So I think that the formlessness of the internet age gives us a change of pace. This stage of time allows us the opportunity and the responsibility to curate our own truths, which makes space for multiple true worlds and realities to exist simultaneously, okay? Whatever truth is to you. I do not trust centralized lawmaking bodies to distribute information that has my best interests in mind freely. Of course I don't. Of course I don't. Those people regularly do shit that is outside of my best interest. So in saying this, I also, I'm taking Ruthie Wilson Gilmore's words into account. I don't want to fetishize the state as a moving, walking, talking robo body, right? There's no really such thing as the state. There's a conglomerate of people in the ruling class making decisions by way of of policy and enacting that policy with physical violence um, and economic violence and ontological violence. Anyways, people are people and they do their best to look after themselves. So I... Me, Ismatu, please don't forget that I am a person trying to convince you of something. I am distributing information I consider to be within my best interests. And I feel strongly that my best interests lie with what is kind and considerate and sustainably loving to the working class people, to the colonized people and to the exploited peoples. So while accessible, I mean, quote unquote, information may be euphemistic at best on account of Google gentrifying the whole internet and most existing web pages being written in English, so much more is possible with the internet. Information has never been this world shaping this fast. I'm going to spoil this because um, I'm writing another essay, a sequel to this essay called Information Anarchy, which is what we're seeing in a war, quote unquote, that is won and lost by how effective the propaganda that is moving through the populace is. So this is the reason I put accessible in quotes, a, a big quotation there, right? It's not accessible to whom and how, but then we also see how world-shaping information is, right? When we have Twitter um, that, and, and TikTok and Snapchat where people have cameras in their hands and they can show you physically what's going on and we no longer have to go through official governing bodies for what is correct or appropriate to think about an unfolding conflict, right? We can see it with our eyes from the people that are living it. That is world shaping um, and it really disrupts the propaganda machines that we have in place. Anyways, I'm getting ahead of myself. This is point two, the value of information, influencers, sponsorships, and the curious case of intellectual property. Property is theft. This is from Pierre Joseph Proudhon. You know, in my own words, right? Property is the transitioning of public goods and space to private enterprises. Public goods to private enterprises capable of extracting profit, where profit is the difference between the cost of labor and the value of the product resulting from that labor. 
It's a key performance indicator. How cheap can we get this labor to make sure that we can maximize maximize what we in charge and the ruling class of this conglomerate take home? Also, I mean, shout out to the indigenous folks across the world who have been saying property is theft for like since the dawn of colonization. But you're like, yeah, okay, there's the white man that wrote it down first. So the current economy under capitalism, right? Um, it allows us to imagine that it's permissible and even encouraged to sell private information for profit, which is like quite a clusterfuck in my mind. Where did the distinctions between private and public come from? What do we make of people who tell their stories from lives and attach them to products in order to pay rent? What do we do with university systems that lock the knowledge of various iterations of humanity behind paywalls hundreds of thousands of dollars high? Like, I got a lot of beef with my alma mater, for example, who has the largest Africana library in the world, locked up in a suburb in Illinois. What the fuck? Who deemed that as private and for what purpose and to whose benefit? How do you own such a thing? How, how does a white Anglican instit- private institution come to own the largest collection of African written works in the world, in the known world? When attached to information, anarchy necessitates freely flowing, freely accessible info in which individual persons or collectives of people decide what truth is for themselves, okay? Rather than accepting what capital T truth is from a source that's been legitimized by the governing state, by corporate powers, or by elite and exclusive informational bodies. So here's where this gets really hairy. In the realm of information, private is relative. What constitutes private enough to own? Who decided that? And the ability to build or enforce a gate is really foundational to what constitutes private and public. The moment that you build a fence around a piece of property, it can be yours. Like, is it the sensitivity of the subject matter that makes it private? Whose metric are we using? Do we live in a society where people are sharing freely and completely without economic compulsion or is it for, you know, financial gain in otherwise pretty dire economic straits? Like I'm thinking back about my, my days as a stripper in which my private information read my, my naked body <laughs> was made accessible to the public for a price. And I liked stripping more than I liked minimum wage service jobs. And, and would I ever have chosen to negotiate my privacy without sincere economic stress? Oh, yeah. Okay. So why do we think differently about memoir sales or storytime influencers? And then in charging for information that I gleaned from the public. So we're talking about educational information. I create privatized intellectual property, which is theft. By anarchist definitions, that's theft. I am selling the collective consciousness back to us. Even this essay, like, I don't claim ownership over this knowledge. I'm only showing my work. I'm trying to thread together what I have learned and why I know what I know. But I don't claim to own this. I I also don't wish to make myself the authority or the expert in the process of teaching and learning in public, which is a really easy dynamic to fall into. I have been legitimized through corporate powers by way of garnering a following on social media and also through elite and exclusive education at private universities. Thus, I am compelled to stress that I am not and can never be the T-H-E-E authority. I owe you, the learner, 
constant reminders to question me and to challenge my limitations as someone steeped in formalized, privatized, institutionalized knowledge. I'm someone with a passport from the United States. I'm someone hoping to glean support from you in a multitude of ways to continue my work. I have, I, like, there are things that compel me to do this. I beg you to consider me critically. We have a subsection 2A entitled Sponsorships Place Influencers in the Role of Legitimized and Lucrative Independent Contractor. Okay. We have this air of legitimacy. <clears throat> Sorry. We have this air of legitimacy that comes with being sponsored by large recognizable brands that is undeniable like you know that your favorite influencer has made it when they're coming out with this big collaboration between them and a household name brand because we as the audience understand how lucrative and selective those kinds of business deals can be we know that influencers primarily make money via advertisements that run before watching a video, which is called monetization, before or during or after, are marketed to us by the influencer themselves showing us a product um, that or a service that they were compensated for recommending. That's called a sponsorship. We also have click-through web links that provide uh, data, which allows websites to track activity back to their recommendation. Those are affiliate links. And then we have big ticket sponsorships, such as brand collaborations, as exampled above. I exampled um, Jackie Ina and her collaboration palette with Anastasia Beverly Hills. That's no shade. I was excited for her when she got that palette because, again, we know how lucrative those deals are. We know how difficult they are to get. But it's, it's a really good example, a big ticket sponsorship, right? Brand collaborations. They're only reserved for creators that are as marketable as possible. So this typically means including, but you know, you don't need all of these things, white folks, cisgender folks, beautiful, capital B, beautiful people, youthful, affluent with cult followings, et cetera. Like you want to make sure that those people will, you know, swipe the card, even if they don't need it. Now, I'm not against people in general taking the agency that they have to create stability for themselves please don't think that's the case every way and i do mean every way to make money and to spend money in this society is a negotiation all of it requires privilege okay each and every one of us needs to consider what is and is not negotiable to meet our basic human needs each and every one of us each and every one of us needs to consider for ourselves what is negotiable and what is not negotiable in order to meet our basic human needs, okay? As an online artist, let me show you what scares me, scares me blind about advertising a physical item for sale. We have a comment here from, from Jackie Ina's post about her, um, her brand collaboration, this eyeshadow palette. This someone said, you know, me wears eyeshadow palettes Where's eyeshadow exactly twice a year? And then also me. I need this palette. Without this palette, I will die. I cannot live without this palette. And it's like, it's a funny comment. I'm not, it's funny, but like that's, it, it got, you know, 1.6 likes. I know that person was feeling themselves, but this, this is exactly what I wish to avoid. In the production and the distribution of physical products, there are a lot, and I mean a lot of people involved that we in the West choose not to see. We choose not to think about it. Physical things are not necessarily easier to make in the post-industrial revolution era we've just outsourced and we have streamlined slave labor we've outsourced it and we've streamlined it 
but it's not necessarily easier to make the products. It's easier to make them in mass. Sponsorships and collaborations in which I use my internet persona to push a mass produced item often have these really sticky in-betweens wherein labor is exploited to produce goods that are cheap enough to resell to working class Western people. It's why I don't sell t-shirts or mugs to support myself. It's why I have no sponsorships written in all caps in my TikTok bio literally all the time, even though brands choose to ignore it and email me anyways. I don't have the desire to contribute to our obsession with commodity, and I don't want you, the reader, the listener, the watcher, what have you, to buy something that you would never normally use for the sake of supporting me. If I do ever sell something, I want the majority of the money produced to go to the laborer who made the product, not a company who was already rich before I got there. Okay, so we have another point to be. Remember, we're talking about the lucrative nature of sponsorships and advertisements. I want us to return to the formation of Google because I threw them some slight shade, but we're really going to get into it. I want to caution you, the listeners, that there are a lot of pictures here that I'm not going to read because it's just too long. But go back and look at the newsletter portion of this newsletter podcast, okay? So I'm having a time of writing this, the trippiest moment that I had in a long time, and I was sober. The above picture is from an article written and published in 1998 by Sergey Brin and Lawrence Page. And at the time of printing, they were two PhD students at Stanford University working on innovating access to research texts and the internet at large, which at the end of the 20th century was still an infantile arena. Okay. Present day, they're both in the top 10 richest people in the world. Brin at $108 billion, $108 billion with a B. And Paige at 113.7 billion with a B. The duo invented one of the most important moving hands of surveillance capitalism, Google. A new means of infrastructure to oppress and extract the masses attuned beautifully to the information age. Now, I linked the full article to the picture above. And there was this one quotation that I kept seeing other articles cite, but I just could not find in the article available itself. The quote is, we expect advertising funded search engines to be inherently biased towards the advertisers and to move away from the needs of consumers. We believe that the issue of advertising causes enough mixed incentives that it is crucial to have a competitive search engine that is transparent and in the academic realm. Now, I read the article available to the public three different times. I searched for keywords, nothing like that. Nothing like that quote was in the pages of the text. And I assumed that maybe uh, the particular website that I saw that on, maybe they had just made a mistake in their sources, or maybe they were attempting to quote an interview and not this particular article from 1998. But I searched a snippet of the quote anyways, just to make sure. And I found multiple sources exciting the exact same words and some with page numbers page 18 i muttered to myself like some foolish newly disillusioned ya protagonist there there is no page 18 this is where the narrator takes over because i lost my mind in this moment isma to gwendolyn's blood runs cold for only a second covered in uncomfortable prickly goose flesh for just a hair's breath it's a bodily reaction not all that dissimilar to the one they had when they almost got banned from TikTok permanently for being happy that the Queen of England died. That this was the only user-reported video TikTok refused to reinstate to the account. Well, here lies the stark realization that you can't even say they're villains out loud. 
And you know that, like you knew. Um, but it manages to feel like a newly occurring death each time. It is not enough, apparently, to suffer at their hand. You must pretend like you like it. History is rewritten before our eyes and our fingertips, before we have a chance to archive and broadcast the truths. They strike from the record the ways in which the founders of Google wanted it to work for the public rather than against them. They knew the power of what they had created and still, they, they still sold us. They sold us and they don't even want us to remember. They colonize every part of our days and our histories and they will us to forget. They make themselves so marinated in institutional power that you can't even find that they see to it that you do not find. The days where they still regarded the masses as the people, capital T, capital P, rather than endless sites of extraction. As indistinguishable, colonizable mounds of pricked flesh. And you cannot yell to the internet about this injustice because it's theirs. And if they let you speak, Ismantu, know that you were allowed to. There's a reprint um, that I linked in the newsletter that I suspect might have the original text in it. And conveniently, it's only available via formalized academic institutional access. So it's linked in case anybody's got that. The narrator says, Ismatu, go to bed. I cannot. Ismatu, you will drive yourself crazy asking the same questions. Well then... Grief polishes my trophies of insanity as her favorite household chore. How different do we think the internet would be today if they had not gone the full venture capitalist route? If they hadn't been in a position where their beautiful machine was profit-driven? If they had never decided to become and also help invent surveillance capitalism to increase their individual fortunes to the billions? If they had... Like they can rewrite history with ease. This was an article published in 1998 that they just redid. They own the means of production. They can do anything they want to the information we have access to. God have mercy on us. Point three. I'm going to wrap this up. I choose to value efficacy. Having worked on points one and two, I find the need to reappraise what I consider of value. I want my work to be valuable because of the effects. Oh, no. Hold on a second. I need to really read this shit because this is this is the, the crouton of it all. I find the need to reappraise what I consider of value when I take away monetization. So I want my work to be valuable because of the effects that the work has in the hands of the public. I want my work to be valuable because of its effect and not because of the money it makes. Valuable because it enriches the lives of the masses and not because it is marketable. Marketability, which is how well an idea or a physical product or an item for obtainment moves through the masses and compels them to action, is then a byproduct of how useful People find the information presented. I hone my work to increase the sovereignty of the people at large. One method of information hierarchy, um, one way it upholds itself, is through the use of paywalls. 
by the understanding that the information you pay for is more valuable than the information that is free, thus justifying the payment. And I have no desires to legitimize my work through extortion. I don't. And it is extortion. Do we really consent to the advertisements, to how unrelenting they are? Do we consent? Do we have the agency necessary to consent to the debt slavery that in that is involved with formalized academic institutions? Do you consent? Do you have the power to consent to a situation like that? Or do we do what we can with the oppressions that we have? Our participation slash our subjugation is just begrudging acceptance without strong knowledge of what constant exposure to the bye, bye, bye brainwashing does to our brains. We're being brainwashed. I don't want to take part in this. There's a picture I have here of a New York Times article that I copy pasted into a Google Doc and I highlighted all the advertisements. There is an advertisement every 250 words. That means in the, the seven to eight minutes it took you, me at least, to read this article, you, you ingested nine advertisements on a free article. What the fuck is this? By placing educational information behind a paywall, I limit the beneficiaries of paradigm-shifting knowledge to those that can pay for it. And that excludes anybody on an incredibly fixed income. It excludes the teeny boppers, because I for sure did not have no $5 to pay for shit when I was 19. Um, It excludes anybody who might be on the verge of radicalizing towards collective sovereignty, but encounters a fucking paywall every time they seek to learn something important. And yes, actually, I do mean, I do mean paradigm shifting. I document and essay bits of consciousness that feel too important for me to keep to myself. So how do I turn around and charge? How do I sell you back the collective conscious? Then I have additional concern about informed consent. Do you consent to being advertised to? Yes or no? I am actually reading this right now on on TikTok Live because storytelling for me involves um, listeners. I can't do it by myself. So I'm asking you people, do you actually consent to being advertised to? Tell tell me yes or no. I think I accept it as just a necessary evil of learning and leisure time on the internet, but I did not consent to this. I don't consent to any of this. Hmm. Just so y'all know, the listeners, the listeners tuning into the podcast, it's a stream of people saying, no, I did not. No, I don't consent. Somebody said no in all caps. Exactly. That Beyonce no. 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 (laughs) So our current world, it's saturated with advertisements. And I understand that we accept advertisements, especially in the form of sponsorship so that people can pay their bills and have lives like that are livable. And it does not change the fact that advertising is inherently not good for us. What happens when every person creating stories or art or anything online turns into a walking billboard part time? Whose power is enriched? Whose? I also understand that I am also in many ways a walking advertisement. Okay. I, when I get recognized in public, which happens more and more these days, I mean, it's a big honor. I'm not complaining. But when I get recognized in public, I hear, oh my gosh, are you, are you on TikTok? I hear, are you on Instagram? Who do you think I'm advertising for with circulating my face and my voice so widely on these platforms? I'm advertising for them. Like in some ways, this is inescapable. I'm already a walking billboard. I don't need to throw my word in that hat. My body is already 
public source, okay? Like my my I'm I'm already I'm already an advertisement in many ways. I don't need to sell my word. I don't want to throw my word in the ring. I don't want to enrich the power of the systems at large more than I already have to by participating, right? Part of my self-governance is that I wish to hand corporations as little power as possible in my day-to-day. Since part of my day-to-day is being online to a rather wide audience, a perpetually growing audience, in fact, I thank you all so much for rocking with me. I don't want to hand over the power of my word. My pen is powerful. My tongue is powerful. And it I think that it has to be mine and it has to be ours. And my own is always has to be the people that keep me fed and safe, which is you all. Wikipedia is one of the most incredible examples of information anarchism that we have. Um, it's not a perfect example because as the comments on the Substack pointed out, like Wikipedia is still run by cis white men. So the, the, the breadth of knowledge and how well these resources are collected and curated, they skew towards them, right? It's only possible because 2% of users donate every year. It's not perfect. Most definitely not far from that, but I still love it. First of all, Proud to be in the 2% game. Represent. I rep Wikipedia hard. It is a feat of human magnificence, even despite the ways that information apartheid sinks its claws into us. And then also, if it's possible for them, why can't I work for the public rather than have my word bought out to the highest bidder? Why can't I just work for y'all? Is it like, isn't it also precarious uh, working for companies? If corporate entities wishing to cut me a small a bite-sized piece of profit. And that's what I depend on to pay for my basic necessities. If they wish to cut me a little bit for my word, which is so valuable, that means I can never make them angry. Shout out to what I said at the, 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 the top of this podcast. I'm literally wearing a rhinestone shirt that says Free Palestine. And I did not like buy this lightly. I don't think that t-shirt activism is cute. I'm doing this because I understand that I'm a walking billboard. I understand that my face and my image and my voice is going to be circulated widely. So, so long as I am a walking billboard, y'all are going to know what it's about. I could not do that if I was depending on the precarity of corporate sponsorships because that means I could never make them angry. And I'm not here to be fucking entertaining. If you're angrier after listening to my shit, good. How does that work as an anti-capitalist, you know? How does sponsorships work? How is that too not precarious? It is. I want to find value in my work because of what it does. I don't want to find its value on how much money it produces. So, right, like this for you, listeners, watchers, wayward internet surfers, internet friends, this also requires a restructuring of values on your end, the learner, the inquirer, the skeptic, whoever you are. How good are you? at finding value in things that are free? Do you find informations, items, experiences, opportunities less valuable because they don't have a monetary benchmark decrying their worth? Okay. How do you create intrinsic value for yourself as a part of self-governance? And what is our inherent and non-negotiable worth? I feel this, this is just an aside, okay? But I feel this especially about products because most luxury products that we have on the market are terrible quality and the value comes from the monetary worth. When we remove the the price tag and the flex, right? 
How does how, how do you find value in the things that you own and the things that you consume in the media you watch? Where is your value coming from? And do you think critically about that? Because you should. Conclusions. I have a responsibility to broaden and hone our attention spans. And this entails keeping my word under my jurisdiction. True study requires us to be committed to subjects for long periods of time. Okay. True study requires us to be committed to subjects for a long period of time. It's not trendy. It's not cute. Advertising then counteracts my endeavors to broaden and sharpen our focus collectively because then I have to worry about what's trending. And it has to be free. It has to be free. Look at my teachers. We have grown desensitized to how much advertising we are subjected to on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis, and it's fucking brainwashing. You're being overexposed to the purchasing of cargo that you do not need in order to uphold a system that is crumbling and extracting from you at once. Why would I want to participate in that any more than I have to? It's not that I don't believe in commerce. There are two physical and metaphysical products and services that I'm more than happy to pay for, more than two. There, there are things I like, right? I, I might even produce products over the course of my life should I be able to ensure that the workers own the means of production. I'm not against commerce. I consider that very different than selling my word. Sponsorships are designed to promote sales by the say-so of the person holding the item, thus using marketing, affiliate links, or traditional product-pushing services to pay for my basic necessities means that I am willing to sell my opinion to the highest bidder to eat, which places me in a position of extreme precarity, except for now, I am at the mercy of stocks, shareholders, and corporate conglomerates instead of in the hands of the people. Trust the people and the people become trustworthy. Word to Adrian Marie Brown. Either way, it's precarious. I trust you all more, and I don't want to place myself in positions of involuntary extractor because that means I am extracting from you this community that I have grown to love, and I don't. I do not want to treat you all as an endless and willing site of extraction because I don't think that it's willing and there has to be an end somewhere. So here's my line. Also, look at my teachers. I want us to imagine for a moment that before, you know, Che Guevara comes up to address the UN, he holds up like a nice pretty can of Pepsi Cola and is like, make sure to buy this on the way out. Help fund, like think about Fred Hampton encouraging us to pick up a nice bottle of cognac to relax after a demonstration. Be so fucking serious. Be so for real. I am putting myself in a position of precarity, uh, essentially by giving up, extorting my community, and instead by working for my community. I like I I'm just like saying goodbye to traditional means of income. If you can help me continue this work. First and foremost, by talking to people about it, actually read the work, listen to the essay. I love the people here. There are just, there's like 70 people here just watching me do this, stretching our attention spans. I fuck with this so much. Okay. There are so many ways to support me that don't involve money. Um, Money is important and I'm going to get to that, but attention, time and attention. There's a reason that we're advertised to so much and it's because your attention is lucrative. Act like it and spend your attention on what it is that you value. monetarily um is helpful because i do still need to buy food (laughs) and it's not just me i'd be buying food for myself and my constituency that includes lots of old folks includes lots of young folks 
Um, I got some some neighbors that are in pretty regular need of groceries, and I'd be helping out with that. Um, very quietly, the bank of Ismatu Gwendolyn exists, in which strangers from the internet write to me and ask me for money. What am I supposed to say? No. You know how desperate you got to be to write to like some random two-bit Tracy internet influencer? That's like shining the bat symbol in the air. I'm like, damn, I don't got that. And then I'd be cash happy people $500. So um, I have a Patreon. Um, you can pay for these essays on Substack. You can just straight up slide me a dollar on cash up. If you don't got it to like do any sort of reoccurring thing, but you're like, yo, but I do have this 50 cents. I will take that with, with a lot of grace and thanks. Thank you. And in fact, like I can't overstate this. Y'all really be coming through for me for that. My fingers get tired from how much I type out thank you on, on Venmo. So I try to thank everybody that um, supports me like that. I just like, it blows my mind um, how, how many people are, are dedicated to making sure that I am not like homeless and starving. So thank you. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Conclusions. You, listener, watcher, reader, internet friend, wayward surfer, whoever you are, you have a responsibility to consider what you value and why. How do you know? When something improves your standard of thinking, living, or being, how do you know? And how do you show your appreciation for work like that that impacts your life? I would love to know in the comments. I would love for you all watching this live to tell me. And then this is just a final note as a PS, okay? I promise you, I promise you that if I ever begin to take sponsorships, I won't take this down. I was so disturbed by Google editing their previously published paper. Like y'all can't even, you can't, you can't even, it's one thing to break your word and it's another thing to go back and rewrite history so that you, we don't have to know that you broke your word. I won't let you all learn to apologize for me with some vague memory of something I said on this blog once. I owe you the right to be mad with sources. If you ever see me pop out with the skinny tummy tea or whatever, I owe you the right to, to show me screenshots and say this you, I owe you the means to hold up a mirror and repeat back to me what I said I would not do. I just, I want us to imagine what is possible here because the reason that I um, ask for internet support online is so that I can continue to do my mental health work for free. And I'm not just stopping at mental health work. Like I'm only two degrees in, I still got one more. I'm going to medical school in this life. One day I would become a doctor and one day I would be a doctor that practices entirely for free. And I'm trying to set up infrastructure to be able to do that, do that work alongside people where none of us starve and people get what they need. And we have to make as little negotiations as possible in the process of taking care of one another. I'm setting up infrastructure. I'm, I, I will wonder for the rest of my life what the world would be if Google had kept their word. Can you imagine what would happen if I got enough like community supporter paid subscriptions to hire people to do this work alongside me? What kind of resources I could produce and disseminate? How many people could also get care? Because I'm just one person and I got like 500 applications. Like I want, I want bigger things for us. And if I could set aside funds for direct cash assistance on a tens of thousand dollar scale every month. Like I have the opportunity to build infrastructure that works for us here in refusing to extract from the people that are in this space. And I don't want to lose sight of what's possible. So this is going up. It's a, it's a public declaration. It is a public announcement. And so long as I in this life, I'm going to be a walking billboard 
because of the amount of eyes that are on me. I want to make sure that I never forget what's possible. What a world this is. Wishing you a memory that stretches long and that harbors much and that kisses the grief like it means something. And, as always, I hope that the work of your day passes through your hands with ease. Isma Tukwanalan.